It's good to be with you this morning. I want to invite everyone to pick up a Bible, open it up, and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. If you do not have a Bible with you this morning, hopefully there should be a Bible underneath the chair in front of you. We refer to this as our Pew Bible, and uh, you can find this passage on page 237, 237 of the Pew Bible. Before we, we read the passage this morning, um, if you have been following along, along with us through this sermon series in 1 Samuel, we now come to the third and final failure of King Saul's reign as king. Uh, we saw first his inability to wait upon the Lord, taking matters into his own hands in chapter 13, first major failure. And then we looked in chapter 14, and we saw a, an oath made by this king that led to much distress and actually was not was not a helpful way in which to, to lead his people. And this, this chapter that we find ourselves looking at this morning, the, the Lord's rejection of King Saul takes place, as we will see it, it unfold before us, the, the tearing away of, of his kingdom is, is how in which he, he is directed by God very clearly to do something that we will see, a very clear command that involves the Amalekites and his disobedience. And so where I want us to, to begin as we look at the passage, we're about to read it, but I, I want this to be in your minds as we proceed, this question, why is disobedience such a big deal? We have seen in his, in his life, in his reign, that Saul has disobeyed multiple times in many different ways but the, the question that I want us to wrestle with is, why is disobedience such a big deal? A follow-up question for us to be thinking about, why is God so displeased with disobedience? And as we're looking at this chapter, I want you to be able to begin to see why disobedience is such a big deal. I pray that the Lord helps us here. And to see that this actually disobedience is an assault on God's glory. Now, you may sit there and go, I'm not quite understanding the connections, and I hope that we can see in the different ways that this disobedience manifests itself, how it actually is an, it's an assault on the glory of God. Why does it matter? I want us to see that this morning, and, and we ask the Lord's help in that. And so now with your Bibles open, please follow along as I read from God's Word. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on their way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Tilium, 
200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are, until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I brought Agag, the king of, the, of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow down before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. 
As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag, Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made woman childless, women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the, the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Hear the word of the Lord. Now there is a lot here in this passage, and we are going to, with God's help, attempt to work through it. And I think the first place to start for us as we look at this very clear command of God to Saul to completely destroy the Amalekites is to, to answer a, a pressing question. Was this punishment that we hear, and to our ears probably it, it was a little alarming if you're not familiar with this passage, the, the total blotting out of the Amalekites and just how, how severe and extreme that sounds to our ears. And so possibly this question comes to mind, was, was this punishment right? Was it fair? Was it just? And when you read passages like this, there are others that the Lord has commanded his people as they were entering into the promised land that have led many to doubt the truthfulness of Scripture because of a passage like this. And I, 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 I do not want this to be so for us. This is God's word, and this was God's command to Saul. And so we want to spend a, a moment looking at uh, this, this command, uh, this objective that, that God gave, gave Saul. So in Scripture, there are two purposes of such that in the Old Testament, we see this kind of description of, of holy war on a, a people. One was for the preservation of Israel, and the other is God's judgment upon a people, a wicked nation that falls under his wrath. And I, I think it's really important. We see it, we see it in the text, but it's, it's, it's something that can be missed, that this command did not just come out of the thin blue sky didn't just come out of nowhere. It's, it's anchored in Israel's history, which really helps us understand why God would command Saul now to do such a thing. So when we look at this, this vengeance on Amalek, this is, this is rooted in, in Israel's history. 
Amalek attacked Israel even before Israel had arrived at Sinai in Exodus chapter 17. And Moses remembers this, this dirty attack, the way that they uh, treated Israel as they're wor- working them w- their way out of the Egyptian bondage and into the promised land. And we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 5 this description. Remember what Amalek did to you on the, on the way as you came out, out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Unless some of us worry about this suffering on the present people of the Amalekites not being just because this was the sins of their ancestors, so to speak, we see in this chapter before us, 1 Samuel chapter 15, the continued sin of the people of uh, Amalek, uh, 1 Samuel 15, 18, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites. And then later we see a description of Agag. And in that description, in verse 33, This is not an innocent king presently that is somehow disconnected to the sin of the people. It is both now and what the Lord had promised uh, to come about of the Amalekites, this blotting them out. Now, I think this this is an important part for us to kind of wade through as we're thinking through the question, was this punishment right, just, and fair? God's evaluation, this is God who gave Saul the commandment to go and do the commission or this mission, is that they are not innocent. They are guilty. This is God's evaluation and they deserve this punishment. The sparing of the the Kenites along the way as Saul goes to them and and tells them they they need to get out of the way because punishment is coming upon the Amalekites actually show us God's justice. They were not the guilty party deserving of this holy war. It was specific on the people of Amalek. There was kindness shown by the Kenites, and that's recognized, and they are, they are um, given the ability to, to get out of the way. Now, generally, we just need to make note of this. It wasn't that the Kenites were somehow sinless, and only the Amalekites were the sinners in, in, uh, in need of punishment. We're all sinners, the Kenites in addition. But this was a very specific mission of God to complete what he had said many, many years previously of what was to come. And I, I want us to recognize it is hard for our ears to hear that children and infants were included in this mission of complete blotting out. And I think it's really important for us to to stop for a moment and understand that it is arrogance to think that our ideal of justice is the proper standard of righteousness. When God, who reveals himself in Scripture, righteous, perfect, 
holy other is the one that has given Saul this particular mission. He is the one that, that defines what is just and right and good. This is an echo in Revelation chapter 19, verse 2. God's judgments are true and just. And what we also need to be aware of as we're looking at this blotting out, this particular mission of holy war among or, or towards the Amalekites, is that this really is a foreshadowing of the, of the judgment that is to come. And, and some may go, oh man, this is starting to creep into the hellfire and brimstone type of sermon. We need to understand the grievousness of our sin and the wrath that will be unleashed on all sinners who have not been saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus alone. If you stand before this holy and righteous God, in your sin, you are condemned and deserving of eternal wrath. And so for any of us who cringe at this blotting out, we need to reckon ourselves before the reality of this holy God that we one day will stand before and have to give account. And brothers and sisters, friends, if you are not clothed in the righteousness of Christ, but think that you're going to stand before this holy God in your own righteousness, which is just filthy rags, there is wrath before us all for eternity. All important as we're looking at this, this command given to Saul to go and to wipe out the Amalekites. And then it also heightens the context or the stage for this disobedience. Why was it such a big deal? God's glory was, was on the line here. This was a commission by God to fulfill what he said would happen to the people that treated his people so bad. And that description that we read, those few verses that, that they cut off those who were lagging behind. If you think about the injustice and the cruelty of mothers and children lagging behind the people of Israel moving through the wilderness and what, what the Amalekites actually did to them, it starts to kind of shed light on just how severe their sin really was, how serious their sin was before a holy and right God. And so we get this description of this disobedience in verse 9. Saul and the people did not actually do what God told them to do. They spared the king, and in their minds, they spared the spoils that were really good. Everything that was awful, they put to destruction. But, but the things, the animals that were really good, that according to their eyes would actually lead to some great sacrifices to the Lord, this is the description of the disobedience, the sparing of the king, and not putting to death all of the animals. Not all was utterly destroyed. And that is the, the clear description of the disobedience that we find in this chapter. If you've been with us in chapter 14, there is an unbelievable contrast here between Saul's action with what we would call righteous royalty, his own son Jonathan, who should have been the heir to the throne 
in the last previous chapter, Saul was going to put his son to death for breaking this foolish oath that he had made. And yet in this chapter, this is just to kind of show us an example of how Saul has gone off the rails in many ways. He is sparing a wicked king. Wicked royalty is being spared, while the previous chapter he's willing to put to death righteous royalty. What an unbelievable contrast before us. As our passage continues, after the disobedience is made clear, he failed to fulfill God's mission given to him. Verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. Samuel is told by God what has happened, and God says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And we see Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Now, a couple of things about these verses. First, we're, we're going we're gonna, to, in, in a little while, look a little bit more in depth of, of God regretting or repenting of having made Saul king. We get our first introduction to this idea here in verse 10. I just want to make a, a few opening points or comments here. Our God is, actually has real relationships with people. He, he has entered into a relationship. He loves, he grieves, he hates sin. What we also know is God does not change. We see this rooted in Scripture. And in this situation, it was King Saul who changed. So those are some opening thoughts that we're going to look at in more depth in just a bit. But then I also want us to spend just a moment looking at Samuel's response. Samuel cried to the Lord all night, full of grief, anger, deeply troubled by what has transpired as he's watching this king not following the ways of the Lord. And I just want to stop and ask, is there anybody in your life that you deeply care about that is that is not following in the ways of the Lord. And if so, if you truly love them, you would experience or feel these same type of emotions that Samuel is feeling in response to what Saul is doing. And it, and it really sheds light on Samuel's heart. Yes, he has been called by God to speak the truth and let, let Saul know all that, that is going to happen if he disobeys. And he has been faithful in all of this. And he's even been told by God that this is not going to end well for this first king of Israel. And yet we see him still brokenhearted over the sins of Saul and what has transpired in his, his kingship. It is hard when we see people living unrepented lifestyles that we love and, and long for them to repent and come back to the Lord. I think we can really enter into this narrative in that in that way, in, in a lot of ways, but in this one in particular. And Samuel rose early, verse 12, to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel what Saul's been, what, what Saul's been doing, and it's not good. Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he had set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on uh, and, and went down to Gilgal. Now, I opened with asking a question about why disobedience being, why is it such a big deal? Why is disobedience 
to God such, such a big deal. And I try to submit to you that it is actually an, an affront to his, to his glory. And what we see here in this example of what Saul's about, what he's been doing, this building up of a monument, uh, I, I want you to see that this, this act of disobedience actually shows a misdirected praise. So why is this an affront on the glory of God? Who is, who is the one that actually deserves our praise and our honor and our glory? It is God and God alone. And what we see here in Saul's life, this erecting of a monument to make much of himself is this misdirected or misplaced praise in his life. Disobedience is leading him down this, this path Driven by a longing for, for human glory, he's building this monument for himself. And it seems like this detail is just kind of given to us in passing. But it really is actually a, a huge deal in the life of Saul and as he is seeking to lead as, as a king. Now, in verses 17 and 18, Samuel said, "'Though you are little in your own eyes, Saul,' Are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. What we saw in chapter 9 was what seemed to be a, a humble Saul in, in this way. He responds to him being the one who is going to be anointed as king. He, he was amazed that God would choose someone from the, the smallest tribe the tribe of Benjamin, and from the least of the families of that tribe. That's 1 Samuel 9, 21. He, he in that moment, seemed to be amazed, and, and really that was the, the posture in which he should have stayed. This amaze that God would even see fit to use me as a vessel in his hands. That's a, that's a good place to be. But this erecting of a monument actually shows us this disobedience that actually defines this misplaced praise in his life. It went from, I am, I am blown away that you would see fit to use me to lead the people of Israel, and then it moved more to, I'm going to make much of myself this erection of a monument where the praise is no longer directed to God, but now it's directed towards me. Now, there's a, a big chunk of the next part of the passage, verses 13 through 21, really, that lays out Samuel's confrontation with Saul. And there's a lot in this that we're going to try to hopefully pick and pull what, what's helpful in making sense of this passage and, uh, and, uh, and understanding what's, what's going on here. I almost wanted to just reread it again, but as you're looking at your Bibles open, you see what is happening as Saul comes as, sorry, as Samuel comes to Saul, it is clear that Saul at this point is not getting it because he approaches Samuel going, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed all that God told me to do. And this is a very important line in scripture. You've probably heard it before, but when Samuel responds, then why am I hearing the animals? That was like, that was like the, the, the hammer coming down. The fact that he could hear the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen exposed the disobedience. Where Saul was thinking, I'm coming 
to Samuel and I'm leading the way going, I have achieved or I have accomplished all that God has called me to do. And Samuel, even in using the word stop, I will tell you how you have disobeyed the Lord. And several different times in here, Samuel describes to Saul exactly where he went awry, how he did not fully obey God. And what we see in the responses of Saul as he is being told his sin, his disobedience, we see blame shifting, him moving towards the people. They did this. They were the ones that, that kept the best of the spoils. They were the ones that were going to make a sacrifice offering to the, to the Lord your God. They were going to do that. Now, a couple of things. There's, there's blame shifting that exposes that there is not a true repentant heart of this man as his sin is exposed. There's also information given here that just show how grievous this sin was. Uh, one thing to note about Saul first, and in disobedience in general, is that partial disobedience, I'm sorry, partial obedience does not equate to full obedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. And I think if we all look at our own lives, we can quickly be exposed in areas that we obey over here, we feel like we're doing a good job that kind of justifies any partial disobedience over here. We're not going all the way, and so you kind of analyze your life, and if I check off a lot of boxes in the obedience column, well, if there's a few in the area of disobedience, I, I think I can kind of weigh it out, and it seems like I'm, I'm doing okay. I have obeyed. I have gone on mission, and yet his partial ob obedience is truly disobedience before the Lord. And then just a, a note about the people jumping on the spoils or pouncing on the spoils. That should remind us of what happened in chapter 14 of them pouncing on the food because they were so famished, so faint. But here, what it, what it seems to indicate is that they were, you know, Saul says that they just wanted to make sacrifices unto the Lord there would have been a very specific sacrifice, the peace offering, that would actually allow them to partake of the food. So you have an offering, a, a guilt offering to make atonement for sins. You have the burnt offering that we saw, saw, we, we saw Saul make in chapter 13, the burnt offering before the Lord where everything is consumed and it goes up, the, the whole animal, uh, meaning this, this full consecration, consecration to God. But this peace offering was where an animal would be sacrificed and then the worshipers were able to partake of the sacrifice and this, this communing with, with God. And we just need to remember, this is, this is so outside of what God had given him as a mission. It was to be completely destroyed, everything, blotted out. And yet they're, they're using this we kept the spoils so that we could make a sacrifice unto the Lord. And isn't this our temptation as well when it comes to sin, to, to rationalize our sin? We, we, we did this or that for, for spiritual reasons. Like we can work, I mean, we, we are so talented at rationalizing why we do what we do and not letting God's word fully 
shine bright in our lives and just like in this situation, show that this partial obedience is, is complete disobedience before the Lord. I mentioned blame shifting. There are excuses in this exchange between Saul and Samuel. Excuses being made by Saul. And when, when excuses are being made, they did this or we did that for this particular reason, really reveals that there isn't genuine repentance. Because in genuine, with genuine repentance, we're not seeking to make excuses or to justify our sin, but it's a recognition that we truly have transgressed what God has called us to do. And we plead to be restored without concern for what what may be taken from us, the, the worldly honor or positions that might be lost because of sin, a true repentant heart is saying, you and you alone, O, o Lord, are the one that I have sinned against, like we see with David in Psalm 51. It reminds me of uh, the prodigal son. In Luke 15, we get a great example of what true repentance looks like. In just a few verses, verses 17 through 19, when the son finally came to himself, remember he had rebelled and gone and, and just completely wasted away the inheritance. He, he left the blessing of his father. He squandered it all. And, and when he finally came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And listen to what he says. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Just to be back in your presence is enough. Proverbs 28, 13 advises us as to the benefits of such true repentance. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. There is, throughout this dialogue, no true, true, honest, actually owning of his sin as Saul seeks to make excuse or blame shift through it all. And yet we see from Scripture, when you conceal your transgressions, you will not prosper. But those who confess and forsake them, your sins, will obtain mercy. As Samuel is having this exchange with Saul and, and helping him see how he has disobeyed God, we get to kind of the crux of the passage, verses 22 and 23, what we've been memorizing as our grace verse. And Samuel said to Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen that than that, I'm sorry, and to listen than the fat of rams. And verse 23 is what I want us to, to look at to help shed light on verse 22. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Very clearly, we see this taking away 
the kingship from Saul, making it very clear, and, and explaining to him why. Why is his disobedience such a big deal? So in verse 23, it's this very interesting comparison. Why is rebellion and disobedience as the sin of divination? So just, just so we're all clear here, divination is seeking to know, to know something void of God. It's seeking some other way to figure out what should be known void of actually going to God and seeking from his word what he has said. It's looking outside to, to try to figure out what to do or what is best. And so when we look at this and we start to think, okay, how is disobedience as the sin of divination? This, this is exactly what the description of what we've seen in this chapter unfolding. Saul's disobedience, that's exactly what's been playing out in his life. As he is looking around, and we're going to see that the fear of the people really made a huge impact on his decision-making, he is void of God, seeking to try to do things the way that he thinks is best. So the presumption being like idolatry is, is really helpful as well in understanding disobedience. So we have not only chosen to consult um, something outside or void of God, as an alternative, but we go beyond that and actually esteem that direction as, as something that, that is the right path in which to follow. It's presuming that, that this actually will lead to life and flourishing. It will lead to success. It will lead to the right path. All completely kind of going around or void of God and what he has said very clearly in his word. So when you're gravitating towards this kind of path being the right path, well, idolatry is the worship of anything other than God. And if you trust and worship and long to obey God in one sense, and that's void now of your life and you're going over here, well, you're, you're actually moving towards either the elevation of self or something else as being the one that's going to steer your ship. It's going to guide your life. Well, that very clearly helps us understand, okay, are you following God? Are you worshiping God? Are you submitting to God? Well, that, that's a true form of worship. Anything outside of that, anything void of God, falls under the category of idolatry. You're, you're looking towards something else as being supreme in your life that will lead you. It's a big deal, this disobedience. And Saul is being told clearly, kind of from many different angles in this passage, just how big a deal this is and how it is an affront to God's glory. So when you start thinking about idolatry and divination, you start to see the weightiness of this sin. If God is glorified when we are delighting in him and enjoying him and trusting him, if that's where he is being exalted and glorified, when that's not happening in our lives, it is an affront to his glory. And that is the whole realm of disobedience. We are looking outside of his will thinking, this, this sounds better. This looks better. While all the while God is saying, 
I am here, I am reigning, everything that I have given you, divine revelation is for your good and leads to flourishing. And we all turn our backs, the deceitfulness of sin blinds our eyes, and we think this over here, this is going to actually lead to flourishing. This is the path that leads to life. Disobedience is a big deal because it is actually trusting in something other than God. Verse 24, so Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. We hear from Saul something coming out going, okay, recognition, I have disobeyed. I did not fully obey God. And now I'm going to tell you that really what's going on in my heart, the motives of my heart, the fear of man is what prompted me to do what I did. And again, this is a front to God's glory because it's a, it's a misplaced fear in Saul's life. And I, I want you to hear that this is what happens in our lives. We misplace fear and this fear of the displeasure of other people actually mattered more to Saul than the displeasure of God. And again, that is a great insult to God and his glory. Fear of people is, is common, a common underlining factor in a lot of what motivates us in disobedience to God. We, I, I think we can collectively say, we fear the rejection of other people and we crave the acceptance of other people. And many times that leads us down the path of disobedience. Saul's defense of his actions reminds us that obedience many times requires unpopular actions. And I think it's good for us, even as we go out tomorrow, as we're commissioned to go out as the disciples of Christ to live lives that are faithful to him and obedient to him, many times when you are seeking to walk in obedience, it will lead to unpopular responses. And, and we need to be encouraged as the saints that this is what we're walking into. It is difficult. And if we are, if we are guided by the, the fear of man and wanting to, to please men, we will, we will disobey God. Because what's right according to man's eyes almost always is opposed to God. And so if that's what, where our, our, our temptation lies, it is good for us to be aware of it and to plead with God even now to prepare us when we enter into those hard situations where the fear of man begins to mount, even though we know what we ought to do. And we need to plead that he would empower us to walk in obedience regardless of it being unpopular in man's eyes. This is not new to Saul. In chapter 12, Samuel warned him, fear the Lord. This is what will lead to a successful life, kingship, leadership. And Saul had fear of the people. And so Saul, instead of obeying the voice of God, instead obey, obeys their voice. Verse 25, now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow down before the Lord. 
And just a, a, a quick read through that almost sounds like there is this turning that's happening in Saul. And I just want to submit to you as, as the whole chapter unfolds, as he just said that it was the fear of man that really dictated or impacted his decision making, you see here that, man, to have Samuel with him when he goes back in front of the people will actually make him look really good in front of the people. It was very important that Samuel would come along with him, assist him. And, and this is also kind of how we, we know genuine repentance, biblical repentance. A real sorry is always followed or verified by what happens next. So if someone is really sorry, we just need to hang with them for a while and see the fruit that comes from that real sorry. Is it actually verified that this was a godly sorrow that led to repentance? Or was it just a worldly sorrow where they're, they're still grieving that happens because of things that are taken away, but there's not a transformation in their life? And so a real sorry is always verified by what happens next. I, I've been thinking about this throughout this last week as I've had multiple opportunities, case studies in my own life where I have sinned and, and a longing to, to repent of that sin, seek forgiveness, and then to be aware of what's then happening in my life. How then am I treating my spouse after I said I'm sorry for something really does inform whether or not that sorry was legitimate. That's played out in a, a whole array of areas in my life, and it's really helpful for us to be thinking through, is this, is this a genuine biblical repentance of sin, or am I just concerned about what is being kind of taken away, the consequences of my sin? Verse 26, And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And this next part is, is also really interesting. So Samuel turned to go away, and Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel seized this opportunity, said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours, who is better than you. And we will see just in the next chapter, David introduced to us the readers of 1 Samuel. But I, I want us to think about this scene for a moment. We can imagine this tragic scene where Saul is desperate and Samuel is now leaving him. And so he reaches out and he grabs his garment and it rips. And it shows uh, Samuel seizes that opportunity to show that this is symbolizing exactly what is happening to you right now. There's a passage in Numbers chapter 15 that is just amazing how God's word all comes together. Verses 38 and 39 says this. So God commanded Israel to weave tassels into the corner of their garments. And in this passage we read, The Lord said to Moses, Verse 37, and then verse 38, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. Okay, keep listening, please. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and to remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them, 
Not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all the commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. What is happening in Saul's life, the seriousness of his disobedience, really is pointed to this tearing of the garment and what he was tearing and what that represented in the life of Israel. I mean, it, it literally like lays out the disobedience in Saul's life. He followed his own heart and his own eyes, which we are all inclined to whore after. And God is saying, follow me, obey me. I am the Lord your God. The symbolism is so, so rich. So having torn away God's command... Saul will now be torn away by God's hand. And this is exactly, precisely what Samuel had, had earlier warned against. This is what will happen if you disobey. And then we get to verse 29, and I want to also read verse 35. Because this is kind of the revisiting, the, the regretting or repenting of God. So in verse 35, first, at the end of the chapter, we read again that, that God repented or regretted. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And then we also, though, read in verse 29, And also the glory of Israel, that is God, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So you have in this passage both God regrets, God repented, and in the same passage, God does not regret or have regret. He does not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that, sh that he should have regret. You may be sitting there going, well, Joel, what is it? Which one is it? Does, does he repent or does he not repent? Does he regret of things that have happened or does he not? And I think it's important for us to spend a moment looking at the glory of Israel, who God is. And I believe it should help us here shed light on what's going on in this passage. So just by way of reminder, Israel wasn't supposed to want a king like all the nations, but they asked for one. So God gave them what they wanted. He gave them an, a, a very impressive looking king. We're told of the description of Saul. He was taller, he was better looking. And it was just like the other nations. Saul disobeyed God's divine command. We see the, the heartbreak and the, the anger that comes from Saul as he is watching this unfold, and we see that this was upsetting to God. So as we look at this, first I just want to make note, this statement of God repenting or regretting has raised lots of questions. How can God be said to repent of his actions? And for some, this and other statements of divine repentance 
has led to believing something that we would not affirm, which is called open theism. We would say that is outside the bounds of orthodoxy. That is unbiblical, open theism. I want to use Richard Phillips' description to help us here. He explains, open theism results from a radical emphasis on human free will. It makes so much of man's free will, teaching that God does not know future events until they happen, since events do not exist until created by human choices. Thus, God is said to be open to future events, learning them along with us as our sovereign choices determine, at least in part, the course of history. I hope that that is ringing in your ears as false. It is not biblical. But these, this passage is used in, I think, 20 other, 29 other times in Scripture where this description of God regretting or repenting is, is, is read. And so they, they have built this kind of false theology or understanding of, of who God is. Open theism thus not only undermines the Bible overall portrait of God, which emphasizes God's sovereignty over all things, but radically undercuts believers' confidence in God's ability to actually fulfill his promises and triumph in the end for our salvation. I think that's a very helpful description of what open theism is and how it is, affront, it is an affront to God's glory. We, as you have been working through 1 Samuel, I hope that you clearly see that God knew exactly what was going to happen in Saul's life before it happened. Samuel is even told what exactly is going to transpire in this king's life. God sovereignly, exhaustively knew everything that would transpire in Saul's reign as king. And so, What's so beautiful in this passage is that we see in two parts of the passage that God regretted that he had made Saul king. And yet at the same time, we get kind of an anchor to help us explaining that God is not like man. And so if you call that kind of attention, it is a beautiful display of who God is and his relationship with mankind and his character. So the author of 1 Samuel, inspired by the Spirit of God, is teaching us a lot about who God is. On the one hand, our God is not static or lifeless, but as a personal, relational being, God is active in the world, in relationship. And there is, in a sense, a repentance, a regretting that does happen. And I know this is not exactly parallel, but I think it's helpful in helping us get a sense of this regretting. When you think about parents who may have a rebellious child, and they can see the trajectory that that child is on, they, they can clearly see that if, it, if this child continues down this path, there is going to be destruction. Now, they may not know exactly what it is, but there are certain sins that one commits or is consumed by that will lead to pretty clear ramifications. 
Now, at the same time, that parent knowing where this road's going, when that road actually meets its conclusion, when that event actually transpires, that does not make the parent less regrettable or heartbroken or torn to pieces over their child. Even though they they knew where this was going, when that event actually occurs, they are broken over what has transpired because of the relationship that they have with their child. Now, as we think about God and understanding who God is, as God's ways appear to us, there will seem to be change or variation. But we know from Scripture, God in His character and essence there can be no variation or shadow due to change, James 1.17. We read from Scripture, we're reminded that God's glory is described in terms of his consistency. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. What we read in verse 29 of our passage, For he is not a human being that he should change his mind. God is true to his character. He does not change his mind. He is true to his word. He does not lie. He is gracious in his ways towards his people. He is holy and he is always holy. He is just and he is always just. He is loving and he is always loving. Our God is faithful and he always keeps his word. Again, Saul changes. God does not change. It is Saul that is the one that, as God has described it to Samuel, he has turned. He has gone away. And so the response of God from our earthly vantage point will look like what we understand regret or repent to be. But it is Saul the one that that is going off the rails and God is responding accordingly. The rejection of Saul does not mean the rejection of God's plan or God's people. The faithfulness of God's promises are put on display that we will see even more clearly unfold in chapter 16 when we're introduced to David, who would be the next king over Israel. And then one day, David's son, the Lord Jesus, will rescue people from their sins. And this was all part of God's redemptive plan before the foundation of of the world. The last part of our passage this morning, we see once again Saul saying, recognizing he has sinned, and yet his desire is to be honored before the elders, his people, before Israel. And so he wants Samuel to come with him that he may bow before the Lord. And Samuel which seems surprising to the reader, Samuel actually at this point turns and is willing to go with him. But then as the story unfolds, we get a display of what obedience looks like, what faithfulness actually looks like. And as much as it may cause some of us to cringe in Samuel's actions towards Agag, remember it is rooted in this holy war, this this mission given to Saul to blot out the Amalekites. And so there is, again, this contrast laid before us and before Saul, right before Saul, 
in the way that Samuel executes and fulfills what God had commanded. So Samuel here in the, the hacking, the destroying of Agag, the king, actually helps us see crystal clear and Saul, this is what it looks like to obey God when he has clearly told you what to do. And, and the, the, the hacking into pieces, I do not want to go into, I don't want to get graphic here, but that is, that is sacrificial language, the, the description. This is, this is Saul before the people of Israel letting them understand this is what our holy God has commanded and I am finishing what he said for us to do. And what we hear in our passage is that God has great delight when his people obey his voice. God's glory is, is put on display. He is worshipped when his people obey. And we also need to make note of this reality. Everything God commands us to do is actually for our good, for his glory and for our good. God calls his people to obey his perfect will and it actually is for our good. This is a beautiful display of God being sovereign over all, knowing all, knowing what is best. And when we submit to the lordship of God, ruling and reigning over every sphere of our lives, we actually recognize that to obey is our good. To obey is for his glory. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13 says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and to keep the commandments and statues of the Lord which I have commanded you this day for your good. And in closing, if you're sitting there going, okay, I, I, I understand God has given us his word. He has commanded us to obey. And I also recognize that I have miserably failed to obey God in so many different ways. In my thought life, in what I say, in what I do, it can very quickly turn into there's no hope. If that is where we end, to obey brings glory to God, to disobey brings the wrath of God upon us, where is there hope for sinners like us? And we look to the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect obedience. We were in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning, and I want us to hear again, the perfect obedience of Christ, think for a moment, is actually the memorial that Jesus has erected in his life. We saw Saul in his disobedience erect a monument to himself. Christ's perfect obedience is that monument in which we look and out of joy and hope go, that is where our, 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 our life is found, our joy is found, our hope is found, our right standing before God is found. This is why God accepted Jesus and his ministry on behalf of those who trust him. So Hebrews chapter 10, when Christ came into the world, he said, 
Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. The obedience that God has required of his people is anchored in the obedience of the Son. And so we, we, we are defined by God's word as living lives of obedience in faith or of faith. And does that mean we're going to be perfect in this life? By no means. Our Christian life is one of ongoing repentance and turning again and again back to back to the Lord, asking for forgiveness. And what we have heard again and again from 1 John 1.9 is that he is faithful to forgive us. We live a life of obedience of faith, meaning this. Our hope is found in one who has perfectly obeyed. Faith is, is actually believing in a person. It's not just kind of this idea of, oh, I have faith. It is rooted in a person, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, And so as God's children, everything has radically changed. We are clothed now in the righteousness of Christ. We are justified before God because of what he has done in his perfect obedience and death on the cross. And now as God's children, we can all relate to this. We all, if you have had children, you can relate to this. Your children are are first just laying not doing a whole lot as infants, then they start to move and roll, then they get to the point where they're crawling around and you've lost track of them, then they start to stand up on their feet. Now, when they stand up on their feet, are they perfect walkers? They just go, Dad, enter me into the half marathon, I'm ready to go, I'm not gonna ever stumble. No, they, they get up, they wobble, they fall. They get up, they maybe take two, then they fall. And our life of obedience is just like that. We strive to obey our Father, but we fall again and again. Does God look at us and go, judgment upon you now, disobedience, you're done when we have stumbled and fall? No. He looks at us like we look at our own children and we love them and pick them back up and help them to continue to walk. And that's what we're striving for in living this obedience of faith. Our security is rooted in Christ's perfect obedience. We now walk as, as believers who seek to please the Father, knowing that it is only by grace and mercy continually lavished upon us that we could walk in a manner that is pleasing to God. Let us pray. Father, there is so much in this passage that reveals the deceitfulness of sin, our depravity, how serious disobedience is before you. All the different ways that Saul and the people just partially obeyed, which which clearly is evidence to complete disobedience in your eyes, have failed to obey. And we, just like them, fall so short of the glory of God. Father, I pray that by the power and lightning, illumining of the Spirit of God, you would help us to see the disobedience in our own lives, and that it would lead us, your kindness would lead us to repentance, that we would seek your forgiveness and plead for mercy and grace to walk in a manner that is pleasing to you. And Father, I pray, we ask that we would turn to Calvary's cross once again 
and understand that our only hope, our only hope in life is what Christ has accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection. And then, Father, as we look to to live obedient lives, may we be completely dependent upon you and the aid of the Holy Spirit to, to bring glory to your name, to honor you in what we say and think and do. And Father, we ask all of this in Christ's holy name. Amen.